Remain standing as we turn in our Bibles and hear from the Word of God from the first chapter of James. James chapter 1. We will read the first 11 verses of the first chapter of James. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, today we lean upon Your Spirit and ask that He might come and attend the preaching of the Word, that the preaching would go forth in power. Lord, we need to hear from our Savior, the true prophet today, and we need to be encouraged in this truth. And we pray that Your Spirit would attend the preaching and inflame the, the Word today with Your presence, that You would give us an understanding to our minds, that it would shape our thinking into the way You think. And it would shape our heart to give us the desire in the way that You desire. So grant us, Lord, an understanding and let us not be so emotionally fragile, of which is so true of the culture in which we live. And Lord, we are products of that culture. But Lord, let us be strong, take courage, and allow You to do the work in our lives to make us more godly and more effective in Your service. So bring forth a joy that's indescribable from the fruit of the preaching now of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, how appropriate are the opening words of this epistle, this short epistle that is uh, written so many hundreds of years ago to find its lodging upon the fertility of hearts ready to be encouraged of some of us who are going through trials. It is true of Christians that we will all go through trial and that we will all go through difficulties in our lives. But it is also true of Christians that what happens in a trial and how we respond will make us greater capacity to serve our God, and hence greater joy that comes from it. It is imperative 
that we respond the right way to trials. Lest we be like the seed that falls upon stony ground and for a season of great joy, but then when the trial comes because of the Word, we quickly fade away. Since the fall of man, trials have been a part of life for both the wicked and the righteous. And in fact, ironically, trials are a means through which we enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was labeled a man of sorrows. Prophets of old gave their lives for the preaching of the truth. The church has grown the quickest in times when the persecution has been the greatest. Men and women, boys and girls, have given their lives for the sake of Christ and His kingdom and have found it. And yet the church has grown despite what the enemy is attempting to do. This morning I would like for us to consider four points from the passage before us, and that is the joy of trials, the fruit of the trials, and we also think about the wisdom for the trials, and then the perspective that we all need to maintain for the trials themselves. First of all, let's consider the joy in the trial. Verse 2 tells us, It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. First of all, why does he say rejoice? And may I pose, as I considered that myself, the very question itself that I just asked, why does he say rejoice? That very question comes from the flesh. God's joy transcends earthly afflictions. God desires our joy. But yet joy is not something that can be gained in a carnal fashion. Joy really is not even something that we pursue directly, but is a fruit of the Spirit that comes as we draw close to the God of joy and the source of joy Himself. True joy is not something that the world knows. Joy is not something that the carnal man understands. But when God displays His attribute of joy through His people, despite the circumstances, that glorifies God. And so, if we are to live according to that catechism question that we all know. What is the chief end of man? The chief man end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If we are to live up to that chief end of our calling, then we need to allow God to bring forth His joy even in the midst of the most adverse circumstances. It is not in your ability to do that. but you must exercise the means of grace that God has ordained in order that He might bring it forth. You must draw near unto God in prayer. I've heard several testimonies throughout this week of both the saints here and 
even some of the saints back at home in Lawrenceville, uh, how they have been on their knees and how God has brought forth great answers. We must exercise ourselves in prayer, in the Word, and, and in worship. For that is where faith will come. But then, how can we rejoice? See, the reason why he says rejoice is because he says, let my light so shine through you. Let my attribute of joy be brought forth. But how can we rejoice when the affliction and the persecution comes? What Paul or what James is not saying is you don't rejoice in the pain. He's not asking us some perverted way of of glorifying Him. But what He is saying is look through the trial to the other side of the fruit that it brings forth. Hebrews 2.12, Jesus, it says about Him, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In eternity, God the Father made a covenant with God the Son, and in that great covenant before the foundation of the world, God the Father assigned or appointed the Son to be that great high priest for the redemption of a people. God the Son came to do the Father's will and not merely His own will. And He delighted into doing the Father's will because what God the Father had promised God the Son was an inheritance. Isaiah 53 talks about that man of sorrows, but yet God the Father promised him a seed. A family. A bride. A people. And when Jesus was going to the cross and He was there at the Garden of Gethsemane and He was praying with blood coming from His brow and He was praying, Father, if there be a way to remove this cup, please. But He says, nevertheless, Father, not My will, but Thine will be done. And He was looking through the greatest agony any man has ever experienced. He is looking through that to the other side of the victory that God had promised. And the only way He could do that is He was looking through, humanly speaking, because He was man, by faith. That's why He's called the author, that is the pioneer of our faith. He was standing upon the promise that God was going to raise him up. He was standing upon the promise that God was going to bless him, exalt him, and give him a name higher than every name, and that He was going to give him His promised inheritance. So how can we rejoice? It's not in the pain and the agony of the moment, but it is looking at what God is doing with the fruit from our lives and what He has promised. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 12 more extensively, beginning at verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. 
For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of the flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Oh, how that verse came to mind, uh, or in a new way. I was walking back from chapel, from seminary, and one of the professors were walking beside me, a, a very pastoral man. And he says, well, how goes Hebrew? And I looked at him and moaned. And he looks at me with a big smile because he was one of the Hebrew professors. And he says, Now no chastening seems to be present, or seems for the present time to be joyous, but afterwards it brings forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And I said, Oh, that's an abuse of the passage. (laughs) But yet... Do we not see that God deals with us? We think of chastening merely in human terms of spanking our children when they do wrong. Yet, the Scriptures reveal a chastening, a child training, and a training up of children. Though sometimes it is the the spanking... Sometimes it's the rod of correction. But the rod of correction is not always the spanking. Sometimes it's bringing one quickly back into alignment. But there is a training process. An instruction in righteousness is the word of child training that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3. But if we resist the chastening of the Lord... We do not receive from it its benefits. That's why the Apostle is telling us, do not resist it. Do not let your knees buckle out from under it. But allow God to do His work because in it, He's bringing forth peaceable fruits of righteousness. And because of what the fruit that will yield from the present chastening, we can rejoice that God is bringing us into greater joy through the trials. And the one thing about what trials do is they bring us to our knees before God. The world does not do that. If you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you know His presence. And there is nothing that brings greater joy than knowing that God is near. So there is joy in trials. But look at the fruit of the trials, because he brings out that more clearly here in the Scripture. He tells us, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. So one of the fruits 
that comes from a trial in which you go through is a trial produces endurance. And you know what? We, we, we're a people that need endurance. I, I don't know if you've read a lot of history, but if you will compare our generation with past generations, we are a people who demand quick gratification. We are a people who, when we do not get it, will sulk. We are a very emotionally fragile generation. And we are very weak as a people compared to many on whose shoulders we stand. It is to our indictment because we have been pampered with too many of the pleasures and coddling of life that we have become very weak. I was hearing of a, of a, a testimony, I guess, that kind of brought forth the illustration on the way to church this morning. I, I think someone shared with Chesley how they had a, a, a pet deer. And they brought it up from its infancy, bottle-fed the deer, and no longer does the deer come around. The neighbor saw a skeleton that may have resembled that uh, of their young pet yearling. The problem is that when we take a deer and coddle it with the easy life, it loses, really, its way to live. If you ever see uh, um, a cocoon and have watched it, watch the caterpillar go into the spinning phase and then, and then he dormants in a cocoon as a transformation is taking place. And then one day, he will begin to burst forth out of the cocoon as a new creature. I believe it's the greatest illustration of our transformation from a worm to a, a gorgeous butterfly. But if you help that butterfly break through the cocoon, you destroy all of the strength and the muscles that he needs in order to fly, and he will come out of the cocoon and wither and die. The the the. the the butterfly needs to struggle through the cocoon in order to live the life that he is designed to live. And what we need today is not, not a sense of quick gratification, for God has, has given us a, a delayed gratification. He has promised us a glory that we cannot even imagine, but it is delayed oftentimes, at least the fullness of it. And Jesus says, now you remember this, that it is He who endures to the end, that man shall be saved. And so we need endurance. It is not a sprint we are in. This is a marathon. And the only way you can run a marathon and contend well for the race is not to run the marathon with, at sea level on flat ground. I remember the first time I visited Colorado Springs in a trip to, for Hewlett-Packard. They have an Olympic training center up there. Is that right? For those of you who know. 
you, guess what? When people train in the mountains at seven and 8,000 feet and 10,000 feet when the oxygen is, is much lower than at sea level, we used to get these guys from our division that would come down to Florida where I was a sales rep. And these guys would go out on the road to run. And they could run and run and run and run. Because they were used to running every single day up where the oxygen is thin and they never exhausted at sea level on flat ground. See, the, we, we have, that's the kind of race that Paul says we're in. We're in an endurance race. And it's not how well we start. It's really, do we finish the race that God has given us? It's not that we spring up for joy for the gospel for a season and then a persecution comes because of the word and we quickly wither away. It's not that we spring up with joy in the gospel and then allow the cares of the world to come and quench the joy of the gospel. And boy, how we can let the lifestyle and the affluence tempt us to grumble against God because we have forsaken His salvation because our lifestyle is... That is exactly Israel in the wilderness. Oh, did God bring us out here? He took us away from the leeks and the garlics and from the meat and our lifestyle and to kill us in the wilderness. And we have to be careful... Trials are meant to produce endurance in our life and in our faith, and that endurance will yield great, greater joy. But trials also produce another thing that's referenced in this passage. See, if they are then to strengthen our faith, when we are to ask for wisdom in faith, we are to ask without wavering. And it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What is, so what trials do is it produces stability in our lives. If There's one thing that's true of a young Christian. And, he, and a young Christian who just comes to know the Lord does not have a lot of stability in his life. He's an infant and he needs caring for and he needs to... Uh, we, that's where making disciples is... is a whole lot more than getting people to make certain decisions in their life. What we all need more of is stability in the faith. Because instability comes from unbelief. It's a cause of confusion between what our natural eyes see and what God has promised that we must lay hold on by eyes of faith. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Instability will come when those two eyesights begin contending one for another. And we're either going to walk by faith or we're going to walk by sight. But when we begin wavering between the two, we become unstable and doubting. Calvin said this, and it was so potent. To my own soul, I thought I would just quote him. Unbelieving men, or he who doubts, are unstable because they are never firm or fixed, 
But at one time they swell with the confidence of the flesh, and another they sink into deep despair. It's because the despair comes from the flesh, and a false sense of confidence has come from the flesh, and they become unstable. Stability in life will come only when we stand upon the promises of God and live believing those promises. We walk by faith, not by sight. And trials are there to strengthen our faith to greater and greater measure so that we will en- they enable us to be strong in our faith so that we might believe the impossible. what God wants to do. God wants you and me to believe the impossible. God did not call us to believe something that was easy to believe. That's why it takes grace. Even His disciples came and as Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, His disciples said, why could we not cast this? He says, oh ye of little faith. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and Jesus puts before him the high demand of of just giving up life in the flesh and to come and follow Him. To give up everything He had, to deny Himself and to pick up His cross and follow Jesus. And then He says, you know, it's hard for a rich man. And the disciples said, it's impossible. And Jesus, you can almost see him nodding. Yes, yes, it's impossible with men, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And what Jesus was wanting his disciples to see is that he has called them to believe what the carnal mind would say is impossible. And stability in our life comes from believing more and more the impossibilities that God will bring forth in our very presence. We take for granted that a woman and a man can bring forth a child into this world. We just take it for granted until you happen to be that woman who can't have children. See, so much of life we take for granted, but it is all under the orchestration of Almighty God. You take for granted that that you can go out and, and have food on your table this afternoon if we're not careful. We take it for granted. But if you are a farmer... And, and it's all you had was, was the harvest. And a famine came. Trust me, there is no such thing as job security outside of God. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Our Lord, you have provided. Provide the impossible. 
the children of Israel and seeing God's works in Egypt should have had no trouble believing God for every other thing in their lives. And yet, they failed to remember what God had done in their past trials, and so they doubted Him for future victories. We find ourselves too often associated with that group to our shame. So let us consider the fruit that the trials are to bring forth. It brings forth endurance so that our faith may be strengthened. It brings forth greater faith so that we might be more stable people. Stable in trusting the promises of God. Second or third, we also have associated with this very notion of trials, wisdom. He goes right from saying that we ought to count it all joy when we fall into different kinds of trials. He goes right from there. He says, and if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, why does he put that there? Because when we're going through a trial, one thing we need, and God knows it, is wisdom. And so we have wisdom for trials right there. But there are two things that are requisite and mandatory, yea, necessary for us to have wisdom in our trial. And the first of it is you better ask for it. If any man lacks wisdom, and I think the the, the resonant feeling is, (laughs) I need wisdom. I lack it. It says, if any of you let him ask of God, the one who gives wisdom liberally, he is the source of wisdom. And so let him ask the source. James later says in in a couple of chapters, he says, you know, you don't have wisdom or you don't have because you do not ask. Well, you have to ask. When you ask God for things, you're acknowledging a dependence upon Him. You're acknowledging something about Him and something about you. Jesus told His disciples in John 16, 24, Hitherto you have asked nothing in My name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. God is the source of wisdom. That's why He says you must seek it. You've got to ask for it. You've got to knock for it. Proverbs 4 tells us we've got to search for it as hidden treasure. It's got to be our focus. But let me clarify something. Wisdom is not some kind of gnosis. It is not an abstract knowledge. It is not just knowing something intellectually. Let me explain this. Wisdom is the conversion of knowledge into life. That comes from God. In the most mundane sense, the word wisdom, hakma, in the Hebrew, means skill. Just in the most rudimentary form of that word, it just means skill. So you've, you've been reading Exodus, and in Exodus it says that God gave Bezalel wisdom in banging out hammered gold into candelabras, into articles of the tabernacle. The word is used, He gave wisdom to the women for the spinning of goat's hair into fine thread 
and to weave this together for the curtains of the tabernacle. Wisdom is a skill. Yes, there's knowledge that you have to have about it. But it is the conversion of knowledge into life. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You have to ask for it. You have to seek the right source. You have to fear God. You have to lean upon Him for the only wisdom from heaven which is pure and peaceable and right and good. It is the conversion of knowledge into life. So when we speak about wisdom of the Proverbs, what King Solomon is saying to us, he says, my son, as he speaks to his son, he says, wisdom is a skill in living life. When you want to choose out from among you men full of wisdom, you want to choose deacons who have a skill in living life. And when we're going through trials, what we must understand is we need wisdom, and the wisdom is not just knowledge for that decision or this decision. It is a skill in living life. And what we get back when God answers our prayer is not a list. Okay, question one, here's the answer for that. And Number two, you asked me what decisions should you make there. There's wisdom for that. Number three, we do not get a delineated list of all of the answers to all of the questions. We get something so much more. We get a knowledge that is converted into life. We get true life, which is full of joy. It is life that is close to the source of life. Jesus came to give us eternal life, and this is eternal life, that we may know God experientially, and the Son whom He has sent, John seventeen three. The way we live either produces life or it produces death. If we live in sin, then there is death. But if we live in wisdom and the fear of God, there's life. We want life. We want joy. We want peace. We want love. We want what Christ is and what He has promised. If any man lacks wisdom, do you lack wisdom in trials? Do you respond the right way in trials? Do we, do we flare up with our complaints and our anger? And sure, all of us can acknowledge our weakness. What we need is we need life. Jesus came to save us out of death unto life. He did not lead us into the wilderness so that we might starve or thirst to death. He came to deliver us into life. Let us see the bondage from which we were delivered and the glory to which we go so that we know that Jesus is the author and the finisher of life. And that we might have it more abundantly that our joy might be full. But 
Not only must we ask, we must ask a certain way. And that is ask in faith, believing. It says we must ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And you can just kind of see a storm out in the ocean. The waves are going this way and that. And it's just here and there. There's nothing that seems deliberate. There's nothing that... It is just a storm. There's no calmness. Remember Jesus when His disciples didn't have faith and He's on the boat and He says to the ocean and to the waves, Peace, be still. And they were beginning to see with new eyes who He was. Let him ask in faith. Calvin says this, He that wavereth or doubteth, by this similitude he strikingly expresses how God punishes the unbelief of those who doubt His promises. For by their own restlessness, they torment themselves inwardly. For there is never any calmness for our souls, except they recome on the truth of God. He at length concludes that such are unworthy to receive anything from God. That's potent. If you will receive anything from God, it will be through faith. You've got to believe who God is. You have to believe what He has done. And the restlessness of our own souls testifies against us in our doubts. You can have no promise from God. You cannot have eternal life. You cannot have assurance that God will take care of your daily provisions. You can have no promise except by what you apprehend by faith. You have to lay claim to what God has said by faith for it to become yours. And faith is not merely a mental ascent. Faith is a life of trust. Do not say that God will take care of you because Matthew 6.33 is your life verse. If you don't, by faith, lay hold of that and live it and trust God for it. Faith is the arm that will lay hold on the promises of God. And yes, faith is a grace from God Himself. But we also have means of grace to exercise ourselves unto godliness, as Paul told young Timothy, to strengthen our faith. We have a means to respond the right way to trials in order to endure. We have been given means. We are saved by grace through faith. Lay hold on the promises. Stand on the promises. Don't merely believe them in your head, but stand on them and trusting them with your life that your joy may be full.
And then we have the perspective for trials. And I'll quickly just go over this from verse 9 and 10 and 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as the flower of the field will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass. If the flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. And simply what he's saying is this. The lowly man, the servant who serves another, can glory in this, that in his state of servitude, that God has made him a prince with Christ in heaven. So he can glory in something that far transcends his earthly domain. But for the rich, the rich who is called Christ's, let him glory in this, that he has been brought down low, not to look to his earthly treasures of all of his pursuit, but that in this he has brought down the high places and he has raised up the valleys to make straight the way of the Lord. And so there is a parity that it's not the earthly, richly pursuit that will bring greater joy. It is not the slavery and bondage to a taskmaster, but it is beyond that, the glory which transcends it all. Keep that perspective in mind. And you will be able to sing the Psalms at midnight in jail with Paul and Silas. You will be with Peter and John who came back with lashes bleeding off their back, counting it all joy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Because God did not merely call you out of darkness into light to be able to just give you a lot of earthly peace and affluence now. But He called you to serve Him. And whatever your lot may be, there will be trials. But there's joy in the trial if we let them have their work in us. Let us be like those who are converted. Let us walk according to the calling wherewith we have been called. Let us not harden our hearts against God like those of our fathers did in the wilderness and complained and murmured because they didn't have certain things they were used to. Because God was changing their entire perspective to glory in new things, in a new land, and in a new way. Let God have His perfect work in us. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for assurances that when life seems contrary, that You have shown that You are at work in our lives. Lord, You have sent Your Son, who is called a man of sorrows, in order to give us life. He became poor that we might be rich. And Lord, we thank You for blessing us with so great a salvation that we have everything we need for life and for godliness in Christ Jesus. Make us mindful, O Lord, we pray, that we would never forget these truths and harden our hearts against You. But in the hardest of trials, 
bring forth praise from our lips, from a sincere heart, so that the world may see that we are yours. And may we know that you are our God, who never leaves us nor forsakes us, but a God who loves us and chastens us as sons, that we might have the peaceable fruits of righteousness being brought forth as the fruit of our lives. So grant, Lord, strength to endure and to respond well. And for these things we give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And God's people said, Amen.